Welcome to Rhythm of Life. I'm your host, Steve Ordauer. Today in the studio, we welcome the prolific filmmaker, Bob Hercules. Primarily focusing on documentaries, his latest project, Maya Angelou and Still I Rise, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and went on to win 19 awards on three continents. The film aired on PBS's American Masters and most recently was awarded a Peabody for excellence in broadcasting. We discussed this film with Bob along with the rest of his illustrious career. We may encounter many defeats, but we must not be defeated. That in fact, it may be necessary to encounter defeats so we can know who the hell we are. What can we overcome? What makes us stumble and fall and somehow miraculously rise and go on? How did you get involved in this project? Well, uh, I think it started in 2011. I had an idea on my own to do a film about Maya Angelou. I did some research and discovered nobody had ever made a film about her. And uh, so I happened to mention this idea to a friend of mine at Harpo Productions, Oprah's company. Mm -hmm. And she said, I know just the person you should talk to. So I called up this woman named Rita Coburn Wack, Mm. who was friends with Maya. It was her producer for Maya Angelou Radio Hour. Oh, And so I called up Rita and she said, I've had the same idea. And so we teamed up at that point and uh, approached Dr. Angelo about this idea. And, you know, it took some time, but we convinced her to do it. She had, she had turned down every other offer to make a film about her. How many other offers were there? I have no idea, but I, I bet mean, there many. were plenty. Well, I know that there was a, in the documentary, I was interested to know that she had an offer from a publisher to write her story. Yeah. And she turned him down for a while. Yeah. Until yeah. he put a challenge to her. That's and right. She did it. <laughs> right. I called Maya. She was in California, I believe, then. I brought up the subject. She was not warm to it. He said, would you write an autobiography? I said, no, I thank you. No, no, I don't. I write poetry and I, I plays. And Bob Loomis called me about three or four times. Oh, he harassed me for about six months. Now, in those days, younger people and somewhat unknown people did not write books. I called several more times, got nowhere. And finally, he said, Miss Angelo, I won't call you again. I said, that's good. He said, because, you know, writing autobiography as literature is almost impossible. I said, well, well, in that case, I'll try. And believe it or not, she started to write. Yeah, and it was fantastic. Yeah, I'm it sure. was her first book, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Yeah. A fabulous book. Yes. So what inspired you to tell Maya Angelou's life story? I would say my two main interests in filmmaking are social issues, you know, political subjects, and the creative process. Mm. So Maya Angelou bridged those two interests of mine perfectly because yeah, she's always well. been a social activist, mm-hmm. a civil rights leader, and uh, somebody who's very political, but also an amazing artist. And amazing in many different fields, too. That's what appealed to me. Maya was a dancer. She sang. She was an actress. Still be your grandmother. And of course, she was a writer. So she was a consummate performer. And I think that for whatever else it is, this is a life lived on stage. 
Yeah, she, she was, was a, a dancer, a writer, a yeah. poet. And a playwright. And a playwright. Yeah. And also just the idea that nobody had ever made a film about her was astonishing to me. Yeah. So that was the other thing. And the third thing was... I had a long relationship with the show American Masters mm. on PBS. So I knew that, you know, I figured if I pitched my Angelo, the first film about her, it would be a no brainer. And indeed it was. Oh, they, they jumped at it. Yeah, I think God. it took me about two minutes <laughs> right. to make that pitch and they jumped yeah. on it. Oh, that's so great. I had right off the bat, we had American Masters behind us. So we mm. knew we had a national broadcast of a very prestigious show. And mm. that was appealing to Dr. Angelo. And I showed her a film I made about Bilty Jones. Look at this huge place. How do you pull an audience this size for a piece about Lincoln? And who really wants to talk about slavery? Or is it under the disguise of being a pop show? Is it going to be funny? Sometimes I wake up and I think, you're not big enough to deal with Lincoln. There are over 15,000 books have been published since he was assassinated. What the hell are you think you're doing with this puny thing called a modern dance concert? Oh, right. And that was another factor, I think, that yes. helped convince her. And that she, she liked she, that She film. loved the film. Okay. And then Rita, Rita had this long relationship with her, so there was that trust right. factor. So Which is was, critical for her, I'm critical. sure. She Absolutely. doesn't let a whole lot of people into her inner circle. No, she does not. And she suffers no fools. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think when we started on the film, we realized right off the bat, we'd have to put everything we had into it, you know, mm -hmm. like no holding back mm -hmm. because this was going to be the first and maybe only real film mm -hmm. about her because mm -hmm. she, her health was not good. Right. And so I remember at one point when we first started working on it, I was ready to walk out her door and she said, one other thing, Mr. Hercules. And I said, what's that? And she said, you better get moving. And what she meant was she knew she was not going to live long Oh, mm -hmm. and, and we better get moving on the documentary. So we went into high gear. Right. So uh, how long after that did you actually conduct the interview with her? So that was in 2011 and the following spring we did the first interview with her. We raised some money mm -hmm. and were able to go down to uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where she lived and did our first major interview with and her. And what year are we talking? 2012. 2012, yeah. and how old was she at the time? Uh, she was about 83, I guess. Because yeah. I remember you talking to me about this, yeah. and you're thinking, yeah, we got to interview her, yeah. like, immediately. We felt an urgency to do it. Luckily, you know, she lived for a couple more years. She died in 2014. Okay. So we did, a, would say, two other major interviews with her, and then we also went on the road with her a little bit. She was... Did a little bit of traveling. Her health was not great. She was in a wheelchair. Mm. But we followed her to some speaking events in Atlanta and Washington, was, D.C. Wouldn't she, her um, portrait was being inducted into the Smithsonian? Was right. that you? That's what, right. That so oh, we okay. filmed... Uh, sh her portrait was painted and then inducted into the Smithsonian mm. National Portrait Gallery. And so we, we went to that ceremony, which yeah. was really amazing. Yeah. What? How did that affect you, being there and watching that happen? I had never been to the National Portrait Gallery in my mm. life. So it was that alone was fun to see all the portraits and then to see her portrait unveiled was was amazing. Oprah was there and all these oh. civil rights leaders were there and Cicely Tyson was there and, you know, her son was there. It was really a it's a profound event. And, yeah, uh, I think it blew her away. I remember and it's in the film. I asked her, what's it like for you? What would your mother think? What would your grandmother think? And she said that was her biggest regret is that neither one of them could have could have witnessed this amazing moment. I wish my grandmother, who died 50 years ago, I wish she was alive and could see this. 
that a girl from Stamps, Arkansas, yeah. poverty, a black Extreme. woman, yes. a black girl from the South, from the Jim Crow South, could have come to this elevation was amazing to watch. Oh, and, and she was abused. And she As a young person, she was, didn't talk for five years. Was yeah, this? Yeah, she was. Uh, she went mute. She was sexually abused by her mother's boyfriend, mm-hmm. and she was only eight years old. Oh my goodness! And this was so traumatic to her that she went mute for five years. My mother's boyfriend was intoxicated with my mother, in his rage at his inability to control her and have her when he wanted her. He raped me. I was seven. The act of rape is the matter of the needle giving because the camel cannot. The child gives because the body can and the mind of the violator cannot. I told the name of the rapist to my brother who was nine. I said, I can't tell you his name because he said he would kill you. He said, I won't let him. So I believed him. The man was put in jail for one day and night and released. And a few days later, the police came to my mother's mother's house and said the man had been found dead. And it seemed he'd been kicked to death. My seven-year-old logic told me that my voice had killed the man. So I stopped speaking for five years. I clamped my teeth shut. I'd hold it in. If I talked to anyone else, that person might die too. I had to stop talking. My mother's people tried to move me away from my mutism, but they didn't know what I knew. I knew my voice could kill people. So it was better not to speak. And think about that voice. Yeah, I mean, her voice and her face are Mm -hmm. so captivating. Mm -hmm. And one thing about her expressiveness is you can see the, not just the deep emotion in her face, but she has an amazing presence about her to encapsulate sorrow. Yes. And deep, deep deep-seated sadness and anger and mm-hmm. fear and re- all of that stuff mixed up she's she can access it like that yes and it, and it's really stunning to see and it it's it's as if we're experiencing that pain mm-hmm. right along with her mm-hmm. you, could you speak to that yeah, a little that's, bit yeah that's that's a great observation because that's one of the things i would say is most profound about it is that uh, when i we interviewed her mm. she would go back to that moment mm-hmm. literally psychically you know psychologically emotionally she was in that moment every time and i've never seen anybody of all the years i've made films and interviewed i've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people right i've never seen anybody be able to access that moment as she did each time whatever moment it was and it could be a moment of joy it Mm -hmm. could have been a moment of anger Mm -hmm. sadness whatever it was she could just go there well there was there was one clip that i mean the whole film struck me. It was a wonderful piece, and congratulations Thank on you. it. But there was one piece in particular where she was speaking in front of a crowd of people, audience maybe 70, 100 people, what mm-hmm. have you. She was talking about this, I think a woman who worked a service job as a maid or oh, something yeah. like this, right. uh, a single mother, and she laughed, but she wasn't really laughing. Right. I have uh, written a poem for a woman who rides a bus in New York City. 
She's a maid. She has two shopping bags. When the bus stops abruptly, she laughs. If the bus stops slowly, she laughs. I thought, mm, uh-huh. Now, if you don't know black features, you may think she's laughing. But she wasn't laughing. She was simply extending her lips and making a sound. <laughs> I said, oh, I see. That's that survival apparatus. Now, let me write about that to honor this woman who helps us to survive. Seventy years in these folks' world, the child I works for calls me girl. I say, <laughs> yes, ma'am, for working's sake. I'm too proud to bend and too poor to break. So <laughs> I laugh until my stomach ache when I think about myself. My folks can make me split my side. I laugh so hard, <laughs> I nearly died. The tales they tell sound just like lying. They grow the fruit, but eat the rind. <laughs> I laugh <laughs> until I start to cry when I think about myself. <laughs> <laughs> and at the very end, she just started to cry. Yeah, on stage, and I—I I mean, and she turned around and then turned back at the audience. Yeah, it was. I felt the pain, and yeah. I'm not. I wasn't even next to her. I was yeah. watching it through a TV. And the way she personified it, yes, was really not only captivating, but. It took my breath away. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I went into that moment, which is mm-hmm. why she's... And her voice. Yeah, the voice. It's a very, very unique instrument mm-hmm. that she has honed over mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. As I'm watching this film, I kept thinking, what, what did you take away from this experience? Mm. How has this enriched you personally? Mm. Well, I learned some things from her. I mean, forgiveness is one of her main things that she was always advocating, forgiveness Mm. and reconciliation. So I've always been a believer in that. Mm. But listening to her idea of it and her commitment to it really was was very strong and solid. So it was something I learned a lot from her. The other thing I got from her was what we call the film And Still I Rise, which is from one of her famous poems. And I think about how inspiring her story is that she was came from this low level from being a black woman in the Jim Crow South and Mm -hmm. being a woman in a white man's world and having been raped when she was eight and all the crap you go through and yet to rise above that. She was not bitter at all. She took that and made what she could of it and she used, I think she, um, I guess I would say had grace. That was her strongest. Personified. Yeah. She had tremendous grace in the face of such adversity. It was remarkable. And it was inspiring to me. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Because, I mean, you know, we all try to, at least a lot of people I know, including myself, try to live by that. Mm -hmm. But when you see someone up close and personal Mm -hmm. who's gone through way more than you could ever imagine and still do that, Mm -hmm. that's quite stunning. You know, you interviewed so many notable people. Did you mm. conduct all the interviews, by the, the way? Rita, Rita Coburn-Wack and I co-directed the film, so mm. we kind of split the interviews in half. 
roughly. And who are some of the interviewees that you interviewed personally? I interviewed President Clinton and uh, Secretary Clinton, Hillary Clinton. Okay. And uh, Lou Gossett Jr., one of my favorite interviews. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I interviewed a lot of of people during the making of the film. Was there anything that was just really stunningly surprising? That came out of somebody's mouth. Well, that you one remember? thing that came out from Hillary Clinton's mouth was that she read that book, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, when it came out around 1970. Mm-hmm. She read it right when it came out. So then she revealed that her own mother had been abused by her parents mm. as a child. It reflected uh, my own mother's life, which was a life of neglect and mistreatment and abuse. And I gave a copy to my mother. Her mother read the book because it related to her own situation of having Mm -hmm. been abused. And then it opened a channel of dialogue between Hillary and her own mother that they never had before about this abusive situation. That was, I had never heard that story. And I I don't know if maybe it was the first time she told it. I don't really know. But it it just stunned me to sit there and be doing this interview. And then she reveals that. So I kind of changed the direction of the interview based on that and that's so personal so personal which is like you know as an interviewer as a documentary filmmaker Mm -hmm. you want that type of personal experience to come across but even so when it's happening especially with somebody who's so powerful and so well known i mean yeah and she's revealing this very intimate part of her past and really it comes down to why do people write books because Mm -hmm. you want people other people to transform their experience or open up new uh, relationships with people. And Hillary Clinton Mm. got to open up this new relationship with her mother Mm -hmm. based on reading this book and then giving it to mother and her reading it. Did Maya Angelou find out about this story? No, because she had passed away. Oh, my god! In fact, actually, the truth is the day of the interview with Hillary Clinton was the day of the memorial that they had for Dr. Angelou in New York. There was two memorials, one right after she passed, Mm -hmm. but then there was a big one in New York as Mm. well because she lived in New York for a long time, and uh, and Hillary Clinton was there. So we had arranged in advance saying, okay, you're going to be at the memorial Mm-hmm. Could you also do the interview? And right. she said, of course. Yeah. So we did it. Well, and Maya yeah. Angelou, she wrote and read this incredible poem mm-hmm. at Bill Clinton's inaugural, mm-hmm. and it ended with good morning. I wanted a poem. Nobody had done a poem since Robert Frost. Once I made that decision, I didn't really think about anybody else. A rock, a river, a tree, hosts to species long since departed, marked the mastodon and the the minute she started talking you could just feel the change rolling across the crowd and everybody started listening but today the rock cries out to us come you may stand upon my back the rock comes from a 19th century gospel song oh i went to the rock to hide my face Rock cried out, no hiding place down here. Across the wall of the world, a river sings a beautiful song. I'm going to lay down my burden down by the riverside to study he wore no more. Your armed struggles for profit have left collars of waste upon my shore. Yet today, I call you to my riverside. If 
you will study war no more. And once you had that, then I could talk about all of us. There is a true yearning to respond to the singing river and the wise rock. So say the Asian, the Hispanic, the Jew, the African, the Native American, the Sioux, the Catholic, the Muslim, the French, the Greek, the Irish, the rabbi, the priest, the sheik, the gay, the straight, the preacher, the privileged, the homeless, the teacher, they all hear the speaking of the tree. Each of you, descendant of some past on traveler, has been paid for, bought, sold, stolen, arriving on a nightmare, praying for a dream. Give birth again to the dream. Here, on the pulse of this new day, you may have the grace to look up and out and into your sister's eyes and into your brother's face, your country, and say simply, very simply, with hope, good morning. Only she could really bring that to life the way mm-hmm. she does. Yeah. And Bill Clinton said something to what well, I think he said something. He, she wrote a poem called On the Pulse of Morning mm. for Bill Clinton's inauguration in 1993. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's funny about it, cause we interviewed, I interviewed Bill Clinton, and I said to him, did you tell her what to say, or did she run it past you? And she, he said, no. I knew she got me. She understood the time we were living in. She understood the world we were living in, and she knew what could be our undoing as well as our unchaining. Now, we had no idea what she was going to say, and Bill didn't come with any set of directions like, well, I'd like you to talk about this, and I'd like you to talk about that. He just said, I want you to write a poem and deliver it at my inauguration. But I knew she'd make an impression. She was big, and she had the voice of God. And I said, really? I mean, you... This is like your inauguration. You never had her run it past you or anything. And he said, no, I trusted her. So she read the poem. He had never heard it before. (laughs) No kidding. And uh, she read that poem. It was a very powerful, incredible poem. And you're right. The poem is incredible. Mm -hmm. But her performance of Mm -hmm. the poem is is unbelievable. You could see it on the people's faces. We had all this footage we found of people watching. Not just her performing it, but the audience you know, people were crying and they're just riveted by this poem. It was wonderful. I thought it was monumental because it was inclusive. It was understandable. It was the whole package. I mean, it was a phenomenal woman at a moment in history where she belonged with a president with whom she could relate. It just pulled it all together. She just did it. I mean, it was just breathtaking that poem is a kind of like an eternal gift to america and it'll read well a hundred years from now oh i cried when i was watching her in the documentary yeah that last footage i was talking to you about Mm -hmm. where she was crying at the end Mm -hmm. i just lost it yeah because she channels stuff so powerfully she's just She's a natural. Yeah. She is totally a natural. And you know, something you said earlier about her with respect to forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Well, you had been prepped for this for a little while because you had done a film called Forgiving Dr. Mengele. Could right. you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I had learned a lot about forgiveness many years earlier when I made a film about a woman named Eva Kaur. She was a Holocaust survivor at Auschwitz. She and her sister were twins. 
when the family was brought to Auschwitz, the rest of the family was sent to the gas chambers, but she and her sister were kept alive. Eva and Miriam were nine years old and in the front row when the Soviet soldiers liberated this death factory years ago. And they found among a few thousand survivors a large group of twins. Twins who underwent inhuman medical experiments at the hands of Dr. Joseph Mengele, the camp surgeon at Auschwitz, who was known as the Angel of Death. So she, she and her sister survived this terrible experience. And then many, many years later, Eva came to the idea of forgiveness as a way of healing the tremendous anger and bitterness she had about this experience mm -hmm. as a way of kind of getting over it, not getting over it, but you know, kind of moving on with her life and not letting it imprison her. Just to be free from the Nazis, that did not remove the pain they have inflicted upon me. There might be an other way that survivors can heal themselves. I have found one way. Forgive your worst enemy. It will heal your soul and it will set you free. So she, it's a, it's a hard concept to, to follow. You almost have to see the film mm -hmm. to see the process that it yes. took to get to that level. Well, and, and a lot mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, fellow Holocaust survivors did not agree with her no, at all. Definitely not. Uh, to this day, they don't agree with her. Um, it was a very controversial idea because people would say, forgive the Nazis? Are you crazy? Mm -hmm. And she would try to, you know, carefully state her position and, and say why it was good. She was doing it for herself and, mm -hmm. and only herself, right. not for other people. She was not right. getting them off the hook or anything. It was just to, to free her own and, soul. And you went to Auschwitz, yes. as I recall. We did. With her. Uh -huh. With a former Nazi, yeah, and forgave him publicly, right, on camera. Mm -hmm. Can you just take us back or give your? Yeah, so she uh, she had met a, a guy who had, was a Nazi doctor at uh, Auschwitz. He was not working with Mengele, but he was aware of Mengele, right? And uh, she wanted to meet with him, and so she met with him. She wanted to have someone a Nazi declare unequivocally that the Holocaust did happen. Mm. Because, as you know, there have been Holocaust denial mm -hmm. since 1945 mm -hmm. and still to the present. This is a big issue with her, you know, as it should be for any Holocaust survivor. How dare you deny that six million Jews died? Mm -hmm. But this happens. She met this man or communicated with this man, and he finally wanted to meet with her. Had you started... This was the done project? before I started. Oh, okay. This this meeting was filmed by a Swedish TV crew. Thank okay. God. Oh, it's a fascinating meeting. His name was Hans Munch, mm. and she traveled to Germany and met with him. I mean, it was amazing on her part that she would agree to do this. Oh, absolutely. And then he agreed to state unequivocally mm. that that in fact he went to Auschwitz with her about a year later. Oh my goodness! And declared in front of the gates of Auschwitz that the Holocaust happened, he witnessed it, he signed a document and unequivocally that this happened and that's what she wanted. So then she said afterwards, what could I do to thank him for this huge thing that he's done? Because in a way he almost risked his life by going there, it's so controversial. Sure. So she said, I, I will forgive him of his complicity in these Nazi crimes. And so her friend then challenged her, said, well, if you could forgive him, could you forgive Mengele? Could you forgive the Nazis? Oh my goodness. 
Rabbi Eva Moses Kaur, a twin who survived as a child Joseph Mengele's experiment at Auschwitz 50 years ago, hereby give amnesty to all Nazis who participated directly or indirectly in the murder of my family and millions of others. So that's what got her mind thinking about this idea of forgiveness. And so you got involved in the project, or you started making this film about yeah. about her and her yeah. experience right. as she was thinking about this? Yeah, as she was getting okay. more into it. I mean, she was pretty much, by the time I uh, started shooting in 2001, okay. she, was, she was on the road to forgiveness at that point, yes. But she was still wrestling with it. Oh, she yeah. was? Yeah. And... What had her go all the way with it? What it was there some specific thing or just an evolution? I think it was point? an evolution and thinking about what it would do for herself mm-hmm. because she had to admit that she was sometimes angry person and mm-hmm. understandably how can he not be and yeah. bitter and things like that and she has a great sense of humor and I think she, she was does. concerned that she was losing her humor and mm-hmm. you know it would be good for her soul if she did this so, so she finally came to that conclusion you know it was so interesting to me about that. That film and I recommend this film for anybody it's wonderful mm-hmm. is that it just seemed like there was just a huge miscommunication between her and other Holocaust survivors yeah. being all she wanted to do was lift the burden off her and have some semblance of some normalcy in her life given the horrific experience mm-hmm. she went through in Auschwitz mm-hmm. I mean it's just stuff that people really can't grasp yeah, And there's no point in having somebody try to explain it to somebody who hasn't been close to that situation. Right. So her view was, is, and please correct me if I'm wrong, to forgive it was for her not to condone right. or accept what the Nazis did right. at all. Right. And she was very clear with that. Mm-hmm. But I remember there was another woman that you had mm-hmm. interviewed. I, Yona Locks. Yeah. And just didn't. It's just not proper. It's just not right. Mm-hmm. And she had this bitterness about her, which is fine. It's improper. It's improper. I should be permitted. I should be asked. How can you speak in the name of the people who are not alive anymore? I mean, it's... It, it's it, it, I shiver when I, when I think of it. But it just seemed to be a very basic miscommunication and lack of understanding. Would you agree yeah, with that? Yeah, no, it's a tremendous lack of, and you can understand why, because mm. it's such an almost impossible situation to be facing such horrific crimes. And how could you forgive somebody for, you know, so I, I totally get both sides. That's why I sure. wanted to show the film has many opponents of Eva in the film for good reason because it's 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 a very controversial idea I'd rather have the viewer look at it and decide on them you know by themselves what 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 they think of this and you know I, it's a conversation starter yes i've shown the film a lot when it came out it was very popular and played in 100 film festivals when did it come out in 2005 I okay think. oh yeah. okay so i went to a lot of the screenings and there was it was controversial and people get up and scream at me and or at eva and uh or you know and i i I would just say you know it's just meant to start a conversation i mean i i always said to people forgiveness is out there forgiveness is something that every human being at one point or another or many times has to grapple with Mm -hmm. whether or not to forgive and yes this is just maybe the most extreme example but it's certainly worth 
considering as a kind of a you know a starter a conversation starter about this concept yes I, I, i'll say one other thing sure. i forgot to mention eva was very influenced by nelson mandela and desmond tutu i was one truth and reconciliation commission uh-huh. in south africa mm. that was another seed that got into her mind mm. about forgiveness and reconciliation it was very powerful she eventually met desmond tutu by the way oh which was a great thing that's for her. fantastic yeah. but that wasn't in the film was no, it? no that oh, was after okay. she met him after right. uh, the film was done you know what i was wondering as you were talking how do you keep your own judgments in check when you're producing a film i mean mm. you obviously have judgments and thoughts and perspectives and opinions on the stories that you investigate and mm. uncover and you've been doing this a long time How do you keep that in check? Well, I don't believe there's such a thing as objective film. Everything you do is subjective. Sure. So I don't buy the argument. Some people say that documentaries are true or, you know, whatever. Everything is a decision. Uh Where you place the camera, what questions you ask, how you edit the film, you know, whatever. So I think everything is it has a point of view in, in a way. Sure. But I try to not... I really don't want my story to be imposed on the film. So mm-hmm. I try to stand back and let the film take its own path. I try not to impose. I will say as a young filmmaker, I did do that. I imposed a thesis on right. my films. Right, they right. Were terrible. I learned over time to hold back to whatever thesis I had in my mind that it might not be that way. You know, like the Hillary Clinton example that we Mm -hmm. said, how could I have known that she would tell me this incredibly intimate story about her mother and herself and abuse and et cetera? I would not have known that. And so you have to learn to go that route. Mm-hmm. As a filmmaker, as a documentary filmmaker, I, one of my j- stock jokes is, if you're a control freak, don't go into this field. Mm-hmm. Because you never know where it's going to go. You have to be willing and pliable to be able to go in that direction of the film. And you don't really know until you start. Even in Forgiving Dr. Mengele, in the middle of the film, in the middle of the five-year process. Oh, it's a five-year yeah, process? Yeah, five years. Wow, okay. Okay, in the middle of that, Eva has a Holocaust museum in Terre Haute, Indiana, where she lives, a small Holocaust museum, mm. uh, kind of a charming, you know, like a handmade Holocaust museum. Mm. Amazing. In the middle of this whole thing, it was firebombed and destroyed. Oh, my goodness. By a racist person or persons. They never, the person was never caught. But it was bombed and obliterated basically and fire and everything and just destroyed god and they spray painted long live timothy mcveigh oh my god on the wall the remaining wall of the building timothy mcveigh with the, the mm-hmm. oklahoma city bomber sure so i got a call from eva's assistant the next morning this happened midnight or one in the morning or something mm-hmm. i literally grabbed my camera and a microphone got in my car within 10 minutes and drove all the way down to Terre Haute and filmed that day from chicago from chicago how long of a drive is it was that like about? you know two and a half hours uh-huh. and just started filming mm-hmm. just by myself and what did and you it was what were you able was, to captivate it was very raw capture. it was super raw i bet and i talked to eva about this and uh, some of her compatriots and filmed the it was still uh, smoking i mean it was still oh my goodness they must have been just just, uh, mortified oh it was it's just a day i you know never really wanted to ever experience it was terrible but it's you never know what's going to happen exactly exactly and you know not only do you have to be willing as a documentary filmmaker to go on this journey and let the film kind of take its course Mm -hmm. you have to enjoy it i would imagine yeah i mean i i I always feel like i have the greatest job in the world Mm -hmm. because i can go i'm making films that i want to make Mm -hmm. the hassle is you have to raise the money but once you raise the money then it's your film 
Right, because exactly. you raise the money. Yeah. And there's nobody over you saying, oh, do it this way or don't do that or take this out or this is too controversial or, you know. So the importance to me is to be an independent filmmaker. Right. And I stress the word independent. Right. To be able to make films on my own terms. Mm-hmm. But you have to raise the money to do it. That's well, the, the key. Well, that's not easy to do. No, it's on not. On many, many levels. You know, you, your company, Media Process Group, mm-hmm. has been around for a while. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've worked on other people's projects mm-hmm. to bring in money. You've got editing facilities you've Mm -hmm. got cameramen that go out and shoot for uh, high-end projects or what have you how long has media process group been in business 33 years and i mean that's a long time I, I mean, especially with all <laughs> the, about it. the changes in the production business and the film business and technology, how have you been able to sustain doing what you love to do mm-hmm. and be able to keep a business afloat? I mean, it's a balancing act. Mm-hmm. You know, my partner right now, Keith Walker, and I talk about this all the time that we're, you know, it's like this, how do you balance all these independent mm-hmm. films with the need to make commercial films to make a living? Right. It's very difficult to make a living on independent documents documentaries right let's just get that on the table yeah yeah. almost impossible absolutely there's like five people in america that do it but the rest of us have to have some kind of a other gig right and so we do a lot of commercial films and keith is a cameraman who shoots for oprah and 60 minutes and everything so that's how we make our living and he does a lot of shooting of oprah in these Mm -hmm. single person situations doesn't he hasn't he over the years basically her favorite director of photography that's yeah yeah, and Safe she, to say. she's pretty well known. And so <laughs> she's, you, she's, she's got a few Twitter followers. Yeah, and so you know, I want to get just back to the Maya Angelou. By the way, how does she pronounce her name properly? She says Maya Angelou, but a yeah. lot of people in the film say Maya Angelou. I know it's kind is of that funny. It's, it's Maya Angelou. That's, that's what that's I thought. How she pronounced okay, it. and even Oprah at one point during the interview said Maya Angelou because it's spelled L O U at the I end. Know, right? I think it would be. Yeah, I was just wondering. Mm-hmm. You had to raise the finishing funds right even though there are so many notable people involved we had to raise all the money for that film it was a big budget film because of the high stakes and the high profile it was a very expensive film and um do you mind me asking how you got i think you were you had a two hundred thousand dollar gap or something like that yeah i had met this man named steve sarowitz who wanted to hire me to do a a film another film a different Mm. subject which i agreed to and then i appealed to him i said you know we're really uh, close to finishing the Maya Angelou film, but we're short about 200000 So he, mm-hmm. God bless his soul, he was an angel. He kicked in the extra money that allowed us to finish the film. So I'm always indebted to Steve. You know, you mentioned Bill T. Jones, yeah. a good man. Mm-hmm. How did you get involved in that again? You- so Kartemquin Films, the Chicago production company, really good friends of mine. You know, I've known those guys for sure, Gordon years. Quinn, Steve um, James. They were approached by Ravinia Festival, right. the, the venue. Mm-hmm. They had commissioned Bill to do a dance work based on the 150th anniversary of Lincoln's birth, Abraham Lincoln. Right, and this is Ravinia just north of Chicago. Right, this right. is the mm-hmm. Ravinia and Highland Park in, mm-hmm. outside of Chicago. And this is an unusual thing for them. So this was going to be the Lincoln bicentennial year, whatever it's mm-hmm. called. And so a lot of venues in Illinois were celebrating the birth of Lincoln mm-hmm. that year. And so they decided to go big time. And they commissioned Bill T. Jones, who's really maybe the most renowned modern dance choreographer in America. America, I'd mm-hmm. say it's probably safe to say, but a very political guy yes. as well. Emancipation, the signs stand we shadow, symbolic rules of American race. 
super creative, amazing person, really. So they commissioned him to do this work. Ravinia then talked to Kartemquin about doing a documentary about the whole process of this. And then Gordon brought me and Keith into it to be co-production partners. Gotcha. And so we did the film together. And and for those of you who don't know, Kartemquin did the notable documentary Hoop Dreams. Yes. That, and many other great films. And yes, and many, many others. And they do some documentary projects for, I believe, ESPN as They've well. They've done some. Yeah. yeah, they have. And they got Part nominated of the for, for an Oscar this year for oh. Abacus, their film about this bank in New York. Um, oh, yeah. So not even it's a great, it's a great organization. Yeah, excellent. I mean, they they do excellent work and, you know, you have a longstanding relationship yes. with them. And so what did you want people to be left with with this documentary? Mm. Well, in some ways, it's I would say it's my favorite film I've made oh. because it's something I had always dreamed about doing, about following the beginning of a work, creative work, from the very, very beginning all the way to the end. And we had this amazing opportunity to do this in this case because we got in right at the ground floor. We filmed Bill and his partner Bjorn as they first arrived to the Lincoln Museum in Springfield. Right, I and remember. And that was the first, in a sense, their first scouting trip, you might say. So they got research. to see his, his hat. They got to see Lincoln's glasses and his eyeglasses and all this stuff. It's a great scene. So we were there filming that. Mm-hmm. And then we kept filming for the two years straight until the premiere of the piece at Ravinia two years later. And then you got audience reactions yeah. right there, and it was, it was very great. intense yeah, work. It was, it's an intense work. Like in we your back. face. Keith and I went to New York once every two months during that process because Bill's based in New York and that's where they rehearsed Mm -hmm. the piece for the most part. Mm. So we were constantly filming, which is a great luxury, really, in documentary. A lot of people don't get a chance to do that. I'd never really had a chance to do something that intense and that cinema verite, basically, Mm -hmm. just following something as it goes. Sure. And it was just an amazing work. Well, you, you got to see him going through the machinations of creating this work like from nothing yes and so now when you actually saw the piece it must have just blown you away it's like giving birth yeah yeah you could see it all yeah he's such an intense person yeah very thoughtful guy we made a deal with him right from the very beginning that we would always he couldn't really censor us he couldn't turn off the camera (laughs) he agreed to do that and so we have some you know tough sequences in there sure uh, where he gets very angry or gets very emotional Mm -hmm. but he's an intense creative person maybe i don't think you can handle that i don't think you can do it i don't don't, i I feel like you want me to do it and i am overwhelmed okay first of all are we talking day four of our first week time is short this is called the dog ate my homework and you're just wasting my time with this bullshit and now you're trying to wiggle right don't do it to yourself I'm not trying to win. Don't be a little now boy anymore. You fucked up. And so it's really a great film about the creative process. I well, I remember that one moment just after he saw Lincoln's, you know, some of his personal belongings yeah. and he stepped outside yeah. and he was just very pensive and you guys had the wherewithal to capture it. Yeah. And he was just, he didn't say anything. He was just no, alone, just sitting down. Yeah. yeah, it was exactly. Mm-hmm. It was all in his expression and his eyes and he's, and what also amazed me is the guy's not young and he's no. just ripped. He is ripped. Oh my God. <laughs> it's just like he's got yeah. this sculpted body he's that's amazing. 
Yeah, and he... He doesn't really dance much anymore, but mm. when he does, he's still an amazing dancer, you know? Oh, I'm sure. Just I'm amazing. Sh- now, how old was he when you filmed that about? Uh, Do you remember? You know, he was probably in his um, early 60s, I guess, when we filmed <sighs> that, and so he's Boy, great. Something to strive for, for yeah, sure. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you know, you've done so many different types of films. I also wanted to ask you about the documentary you did about Saul Alinsky. Oh, yeah. How did you get involved in that one? Well, my wife, Julie, read this book about Saul Alinsky called Let Them Call Me Rebel. Mm -hmm. And then she gave it to me. I'd known about Alinsky for years. Anybody who is in in left-wing politics, Uh Alinsky's foremost. Sure. So she loved the book, so she gave it to me. I read the book. I loved it. It was Mm. was just like one of those books I could not put down. Mm. So interesting. A guy named Sanford Horwood wrote it. And then the thought went through my head. It's like, well, has anybody ever made a film about Saul Alinsky? And of course, no. Seems to be a reoccurring thing, Bob. <laughs> I was kind of surprised about that too. So the only thing that existed was Alinsky had done a series of you might call like training tapes for the Canadian Film Board, but there was no definitive documentary about mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. So that this is, I think, about 1992 or three or something like that. I started to work on that film, mm-hmm. and I contacted my good friend Bruce Orenstein mm-hmm. to co-direct it with me. Bruce was a former organizer who was trained under the Alinsky method, so yes. to speak. And Bruce was an organizer in the southwest side of Chicago. In fact, he was an organizer with Barack Obama at the oh time. Oh, my goodness. They were together organizing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Bruce had transitioned from being an organizer to doing advocacy videos. He had trained himself to be a filmmaker. Huh. And so I, I was having lunch without with him. the aid of YouTube, <laughs> right. yeah. exactly. without the aid of anything. Amazing. Yeah. He's a very quick study. And so I asked him what he'd be interested in. Of course, he was like, of course, I, I, I love Alinsky. And, you know, let's make the film. So we did. We spent, again, as another one of those five-year stories. And, 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 and for those of you who don't know about Saul Alinsky, he basically is created the most powerful roadmap for, for organizing, social protest, mm-hmm. and really leveraging power of the mm. people to force companies and governments or whatever to do the right thing. That's right. Who championed new ways of organizing the poor and the powerless that created a backyard revolution in cities across America. His work influenced the struggle for civil rights, the farm workers movement, and even the very nature of political protest. In 1970, Time magazine hailed Alinsky as a prophet of power to the people and argued that Alinsky's ideas had forever changed the way American democracy worked. Yeah, was and very, what, was the, what was the book that he wrote? What was uh, that roadmap? Yeah, Reveille for Radicals. Yes. And then Rules for Radicals after that. Okay. But yeah. Reveille for Radicals was his first book, and that was really a, a guidebook for organizers for years and years. It's still being used today, I think. Yeah. And uh, he, in fact, the right wing has... Uh, you know, years ago, they started to realize his ideas actually are mm-hmm. so powerful mm-hmm. that they could be used on either side. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but he's very influential. But yeah, you know, the reason I want to make the film was his name had become somewhat forgotten. Oh my! And yeah. certainly in the mainstream America, nobody had had heard of him anymore. So I thought it would be good to make a film that kind of resurrected what he was about, what motivated him. Mm. Basically, it's he took, in a sense, the idea of labor organizing, mm-hmm. but applied it to community. Mm-hmm. And that was his genius. Yes. Bringing organizing of the idea of labor, but using churches and community centers and community groups to do the organizing. The mission is to remember those that didn't get homes when we get our homes. 
to continue in the struggle. That's where we came from. We came from the struggle. So it was a radical idea at the time to do that. Yeah, and he was able to bridge that gap amongst various yeah. groups of people yeah. to form these powerful coalitions right. that really did have power. And they, they did could have force power. companies to change their ways, like yeah. Kodak. Kodak in, in Rochester, New York, mm-hmm. had not hired any black people but rochester had in the 60s of course had a huge black population Mm -hmm. so it was outrageous that they didn't have any black employees so they took them on they took on kodak which at that point was one of the biggest companies in america absolutely and they won well now yeah and he also had a exceptional dry sense of humor what what was his Mm. phrase with famous lie says uh the only thing kodak ever contributed to civil rights was the invention of color film that's the one. That's the one. I love that one. He was a very uh, caustic, funny person. Yeah, and not, you know, he was all about, you know, mixing it up. He yeah. wanted to create tension. He yeah. wanted to create struggle because Absolutely. that's because through that tension and conflict, that's what actually alters the political landscape. Yeah, you, you have know, to and, you have to leverage your own power. Yeah, absolutely. Because you don't have the money, so you have to leverage power. So. And there is a lot of power, which yeah. is, was quite a revelation for yeah. a lot of people. You know, his organizations really know. are still flourishing around America. There's many, many of his organizations all over America that are still doing the same work. And it would have been such a shame to not have a story, a film about yeah. him, his story be told. Yeah. And that's what's, it, there's so many wonderful stories, unfortunately, that don't get told. Thank yeah. God there are some very important stories that you directly have been able to be a part of and directed and produced. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's another political organizer that mm-hmm. you did a film about. Mm-hmm. Some people may know Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Did he adhere to Solinsky's? Some of his principles. Yeah, so Barack Obama was, as a lot of people know, he was he came when he got out of school. He came to he answered an ad by this organizer in Chicago and came to Chicago for an interview. And the guy hired him. So he was Obama was trained as an organizer mm-hmm. under the Alinsky method because I've talked to the guy who hired him. Mm-hmm. And he was a direct link to Alinsky. And so Obama was trained in the Alinsky method, so to speak. So Obama's organizing down on the southwest side of Chicago for like two years Mm -hmm. using those same techniques. And you know what? When I watched his presidential campaign, I saw some of those techniques uh, in play. Yeah. And and one thing I remember is when Sarah Palin was the new vice presidential nominee at the convention, Mm -hmm. she denigrated him for being a community. I remember that very well. Famous. And I laughed at her at the time. I saw the speech. So did I. (laughs) And I said, this woman has no idea what she's talking about. She doesn't understand that his organizing skills and techniques are going to destroy her. Exactly. And that's exactly what happened. Yes. He took all those organizing techniques and maybe it wasn't visible to a lot of people unless you knew what he was doing, but it worked. Yeah, absolutely. And so now you made a film about him going back to Africa. I did. Could you talk about that a yeah, little so bit? So then before guess, before his presidential run, yeah, or was that so leading up to his presidential? No, uh, it was a series of coincidences that I met David. There Ex- are no coincidences, Bob. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> they only appear as such. But I think in 2005. I was introduced to David Axelrod, and mm-hmm. he wanted to. He wanted somebody to help him on a film, a longer mm-hmm. film about the old Mayor Daly, the first Mayor Daly. Mm. So I agreed to come on board, and and he and I worked on this film for many, many months, and got pretty close, very mm-hmm. tight. Mm-hmm. And then I started working on some other projects for David. And then at some point, he called me up and he said, uh, "Senator Obama is going to go to Africa." 
Mm. And on top of that, he's actually going to go to his family's home village in Kenya. Oh, wow. Where, where his family, his, the father's side of the family was from. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, wouldn't that make a great film? And I said, yeah. I mean, yeah. sign me up. Twist yeah. my arm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, who's going to pay for it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sounds Lots expensive. of good ideas out said, there. Yeah, a lot of good ideas. Trip to Africa with a whole film crew. Doesn't sound cheap. Yeah. And he said, don't worry, uh, I'll, I'll raise the money. Oh. So he did. He raised a bunch of money within like three weeks. What year are we talking? This, is, this had to have been in 2006. Yes. So in 2006, yes, yes. we went on this trip to Africa when he was then a senator, U.S. senator, mm-hmm. but had not uh, announced his presidential run at that point. So nobody knew he was going to run for president. And so what was it like being there as he was going back and watching this, you know, go through this walk back into his history mm-hmm. i mean he was there and then not only do i i'm interested in how you were viewing his experience mm-hmm. but then later the man became president the yeah. first african-american president <laughs> ever Amazing. and you you were on this journey this very very intimate very personal journey of mm. of him going back to his roots really mm-hmm. what was that like well it was not intimate i'll say that oh. there was a lot of press on that trip oh this okay. is a big deal so he was a u.s senator on a diplomatic trip to oh. to Africa. Okay. So he went to several countries, South Africa, Kenya, Ethiopia, Chad. So it was not intimate. I wish it was more intimate, but it wasn't. Mm. And so there was a lot of press and then us, the documentary crew. It's more of a, I guess you could say, political travelogue. It's, I mean, it, was, it has some emotional moments. Obviously, when it goes to, his, we went to his father's village mm. and met his grandmother. She was mm. still alive, so we, that was really amazing. We the other moment. So he was, hadn't he hadn't seen her. He had he'd been back a few times. Okay, so this is not his first trip. Sure. Then uh, and didn't he have a sister there? His sister was there. Uh-huh. His half sister, and then yeah. his family, his his wife and his two daughters were on that trip too. So that was pretty cool to see them. What do you think they took away from that? Again, it was such a media circus. Mm. I'm not sure it was that intimate even for them. Sure, you know, it was just a big media circus. It was. Completely- completely overwhelming. I mean, it's hard to describe unless you were there to see hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of people just lining the streets of this very small town, uh, cheering uh, this man, my husband. It's sort of like, do you do you know him? <laughs> but it was very powerful. And they were really young. The daughters were very young, and I think they were kind of overwhelmed by the I bet. circus atmosphere and everything. But the other moment I remember from that is when we were in Cape Town, South Africa, we went to Robben Island, where Nelson Mandela and many of the others were imprisoned during the years of apartheid. And Senator Obama went into the jail cell, Nelson Mandela's jail cell, and we were able to film that. It was That was quite moving. I could see that in his eyes, the profound moment for him, because as I mentioned in the film, this was his introduction to politics. When he was in college, he became an activist in the anti-apartheid movement. And that was the first time he became political, which he admitted to us on camera. I did not know that. So I have an interview I did with Senator Obama Uh that frames the whole film. After we kind of did this rough cut of the film, he agreed to come into my office and we filmed like a 45-minute interview where I had him talk about all these different moments in the trip. So he talks about in that interview how he got involved in politics. It was the anti-apartheid movement. Other than that, he said he was apolitical prior to that. (laughs) Really? Yeah. That surprises me. Yeah. And what, what was your impression of him? You know, I, I 
think that he seems to be a very personable, down-to-earth guy mm, who yeah. is so charismatic and warm, but yet sharp as a tack. Yeah. And what was your impression of being in his personal space? Uh, I had known him before because when we did the Alinsky film, Bruce Orenstein brought mm. Barack Obama to my studio one day to watch our rough cut. Before he was a senator? Yes. He was oh. a state senator. Oh. An unknown In person, Illinois. Totally yes. obscure yes. person. Down in point. Springfield. Nobody knew of him. Yes. And he came up and we showed him the rough cut and then took notes. He gave us his critique. Oh, so we really? Wanted, we wanted some organizers to critique our film. Were, were they insightful critiques? Yeah, it was, yeah. He was a very sharp guy, but I didn't frankly think that much about him until a few years later. Then Bruce Orenstein called me up and he said, Obama's running for U.S. Senate. Would you come to a fundraiser? And so I went, my wife and I, and he blew us away. Mm. He was so powerful and so intelligent and so amazing, really. And mm-hmm. his grasp of politics and you know, he's a wonk, really, in some ways. Yeah. And so then we had him come to our house and did a fundraiser for him at our house. In Evanston. In Evanston. Uh-huh. And then we ended up doing a video for him. Bruce and I did a short five-minute video for him, kind of a pro bono piece mm-hmm. for his campaign. I got to know him pretty well. So, you know, when I went to Africa with him, he and I already had a relationship. Right. So that was nice that I knew him. And I mean, is he as he is on television as most people get to know him over Mm -hmm. the years? I mean, is he really this passionate, compassionate, smart, intelligent, funny, grounded, down-to-earth person that we all have come to know? Yes. I, I was, I'm always impressed with him. He's very down-to-earth. We had the opportunity on that Africa trip to have dinner with him several nights because we were, you know, there, we were on the trip, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was struck by his sense of humor, which mm. unfortunately, when he became president, he had to keep in the closet for the yeah. most part. You yeah. Know, except for the occasion. It came out every now and oh, again. You know, he's on Letterman every now and then. Yes. But I mean, he is a very funny guy. Oh, yeah. And uh, But every time we had dinner with him, it was always off the record. So mm-hmm. he felt free right. to use his humor and to, you know, to be funny. I mean, looking back on getting to know the first African-American president of the mm-hmm. United States, you've interviewed... Countless other notable people, including Maya Angelou, mm-hmm. Oprah Winfrey, mm-hmm. Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, and um, almost the first female president. Yeah. Oh my God. You know, what are your, some, some of your most notable moments that really have resonated with hmm. you over any of your films and all the interviews? I mean, they conducted? all... They're all different, but they all have unique moments and highlights, I suppose. I mean, mm-hmm. I think having met and to spend time with Maya Angelou was one of my biggest thrills because she was one of my heroes. Mm. I remember one, another film I made a long time ago. I was in Nicaragua and I made a film about their election in 1990. Mm. And I'll never forget the moment when my sound man and I was shooting at that time, the cameraman, mm-hmm. were w- making our way through in Managua, Nicaragua, making our way through a crowd of about 100,000 people to get up on the stage when Daniel Ortega was running for re-election as mm-hmm. president. He lost that election, actually. It's just, it's hard to explain why that meant so much to me, but it was just an amazing moment. The sun was setting, mm-hmm. 100,000 people, just super intense. We wound our way through all these people, 100,000 people, and got up on the stage and filmed Daniel Ortega giving his final speech the night before the election. Everything mm. was, it was like everything was encapsulated. The Cold War, mm-hmm. the meddling of the United States with the Contras, the Reagan era. <laughs>
all this sunset and it's hard to explain. It was just a moment I'll never, ever forget. And that's such a unique thing to happen for filmmakers who are in the midst of making a documentary. And then when you see all of these variables that you have no control over Mm -hmm. come together, Mm -hmm. that must be extremely exhilarating. Like I'm, I'm here. Am I really here? It's almost surreal and it's happening and this is happening. And are we recording? We are recording, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Don't forget that. Yeah. That's a ama- yeah. that's that's wonderful. You kind of feel like you're at the center of the universe at that moment, mm-hmm. you know. Or right. actually, the other moment I remember is Keith and I were hired to film the night of Obama's election mm. in 2008 in Grant Park. Mm-hmm. And we were given because we were filming for Axelrod mm-hmm. and for the campaign. Therefore, we were given the center camera position, the best camera position mm. to film that whole event. And when he won, we all started crying. And Keith, especially because he's African American, mm-hmm. the the look on his face and the tears and everything that he had and and that I had and I felt was something I will never ever forget. Yeah, that moment. I mean, you've been a part of history. Yeah, and that's and you're witness to history. Mm-hmm. And by observing it, you are participating in it. You're mm-hmm. actually affecting the dynamic. Mm-hmm. And that's really must be. I mean so enriching on so many levels that most people if they have one of those moments in their life they'd be very very fortunate and mm-hmm. you've had a series mm-hmm. and you know it leads me to the the question of back to what i was saying earlier about there's so many stories that don't get told yes and well, it, although i will say i think more are getting told now why it's because that? the proliferation of the equipment is so much cheaper mm-hmm. there's so many more filmmakers mm-hmm. and to be honest with you, I think there's some pretty great filmmakers out there. I'm always amazed at the quality of the documentaries I see these days when I go to film festivals or on mm-hmm. Netflix or mm-hmm. on YouTube or whatever. It's impressive to me to see the number of people that have really taken the documentary form and done so many amazing things with it. Yes. And, you know, it is stunning the evolution, the accelerated almost mm-hmm. evolution of technology mm-hmm. in terms of the capacity of these small cameras mm-hmm. now can create such a wonderful image and small yeah. microphones and small hard drives and all this other stuff. And you can have an editing system mobile in your backpack yeah, and, and your you laptop. Can, exactly. And, and it's, it's pretty empowering for mm-hmm. people who want to get into it. But I was just wondering, I've often thought of why isn't there a, a social fund, more <laughs> funds right. to tell documentaries to stories specifically mm-hmm. have you ever thought about that or mm-hmm. should there be I've more? thought about it a million times I yeah I, there should be a i mean other countries fund uh films documentary and feature films at a much higher rate than we do like in germany and the nordic countries and you know australia so, and there are film funds that are way bigger than what we have. And well, it's why, a shame that we don't have that kind of support. Why don't we? I guess it's the nature of our society. We, we have so much money wrapped up into our defense spending and things like that, that you know it sucks away resources from the ability to have higher arts funding and higher social funding and things like that. Right. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's just an imbalance. I, very well said on yeah. many levels. And I'm also wondering... What are you involved with right now? And what is inspiring you? 
I'm working on jumping out of the documentary field for a feature film that I've been working on for a long time. Is that right? It's, it's a it's a film I wrote, co-wrote, okay. a comedy called Waiting for the Clash. It's about kind of loosely based on my days as a college radio DJ in Kalamazoo, Michigan. You were a college radio DJ. I was. And obviously into the Clash. Yes. Okay. Heavily. Yes. <laughs> so you were a punk rocker. Yeah. Yeah. You don't look like one. I know. But none of us do as we age. Yeah. The main character is you? I mean, uh, or, loosely, loosely, uh, loosely based on me or a compendium of other people as well. Okay. I mean, it's a fictional film. So as I wrote draft after draft after draft, I, I slowly got away from it being me, which was healthy. Sure. In fact, a, a screenwriting teacher at Northwestern read it and gave me some advice. And he said, first of all, forget yourself. Okay. Don't get hung up on you didn't do this or you did this or whatever. It's a fictional film. So mm-hmm. once I did that, I was liberated to make the character more interesting than me. Because I don't think, quite honestly, I'm not sure I was that interesting. I think you're pretty interesting, Bob. <laughs> well, whatever. But it's, it's healthy. Sure, sure. So then, and, well, this is before all those films you made. <laughs> it was. So, so uh, then I got hooked up with a, uh, another writer named Jeff Rogers. Mm. And that's when it really came to life, when he started working with me on taking what I had written and blowing it up into a very funny script. Well, so, so it's, a, it's a comedy. And you haven't done comedy before, no. have you? I mean, I did one short film uh, in 2001 called The Last Frontier, which is yes. a very dark comedy. Yes. <laughs> yes. Could you just explain The, the Last Frontier what is a commentary on the branding of, of our society, the relentless need, apparently, for corporations to have their logos everywhere. And so I wanted to make a commentary on that. I also, my hairline was receding. So I put these two ideas together and I thought, wouldn't that be funny if in the future, near future, Mm -hmm. homeless people sold their forehead space for corporate advertising? Mm, mm, Like mm, you could have a mm. Nike logo on your forehead or whatever and get get some money for it, you know? So you could pick up some, you know, food and drinks. It's not so bad. It's when they get inside your head is when you've got trouble. I mean, if they could do it, they probably would. Uh, actually, it started <laughs> happening after I made the film. But, really? So I made this kind Are of... You, wait, uh, seriously? It did. It did start happening in different ways, yeah. The, On homeless people. I, I don't know if it was actually homeless people, but people started selling. Like one guy had his hair cut into the logo. Like a buzz cut thing where he had his look, they got paid for it. Things like Are you, that. You're not kidding. Me. I'm not making oh, that wow. up. Oh, wow. I, I did not up. know that. Well, I remember being an extra in that film and yeah, I remember right. the you stamps. I forgot. Yeah, the stamps that's on right. the, the forehead. On the forehead. Right. And it was such a, an, uh, a warning. Yeah. I remember mm-hmm. like seeing the final film, which I loved, <laughs> and it was just really stark and. You know, very, very, very scintillating and interesting, but so dark and depressing Mm -hmm. as to where our society could easily go if we're not aware. Right, right. Yeah, and that's really, really daunting. I wanted to comment on, let's say, The Gap. Mm -hmm. How did The Gap manage to convince people to buy T-shirts with their logo on it Mm -hmm. and pay money for it? Yes. To advertise their own product. I thought that is in a kind of a twisted sense of brilliance. And so that's what I was interested in. How'd they figure that out? Yeah. And more broadly, where is our culture going? Where is it heading? Right? Yes. Everything is a commodity, including now. Our, that's why I call it the last frontier, the forehead or our human skin or our soul, so to speak, mm-hmm. was the last frontier. And when this. did you make that? 2001. 2001. Yeah. Is, uh, 
What do you think our state of affairs is now? It's gone berserk with the branding and mm. everybody's willingness to share their personal details. And, you know, it's kind of out of control. Yeah, it is. This is great. Uh, yeah. I mean, is there anything about your filmmaking experience that, you know, you'd like to share that I didn't ask you about or anything along those lines or anything that you may give as a bit of inspiration or advice for people who want to do mm. something along these lines? Well, I would say to quote my favorite corporate company, Nike, just do it. I'd say the simple thing is don't get too hung up about thinking about things too long. You'll talk yourself out of something. <laughs> yes. You know, I... <laughs> I dive into things maybe at fault sometimes, but mm -hmm. I try not to th overthink things and just kind of take, like I had this opportunity to make the film about Eva Kaur, the forgiving Dr. Mengele. Right. And Keith and I had to make up our minds within like a day of were we going to do it or not because there was an event happening. And didn't you have to plunk down some we of your own money? We had to put a lot of money, thousands of dollars down to take sure. a chance. Well, isn't that, I mean, that's mm. kind of par for the course for it documentary is. filmmaking. Yeah. But it's risky. It's very risky. So yeah. uh, I, I understand the risk. Sure. And I appreciate it. I'm not trying to downplay it, but I do think people need to, people tend to overthink things too much sometimes. Well, now, how did you get the idea to start a company mm -hmm. and create a company to empower you to make films like this how did that idea emerge? well that was actually an accident i had worked for another production company in chicago and the guy i won't tell you the whole sordid story but he basically left town at midnight almost moved to california because he owed people so much money <laughs> so i was out of a job <laughs> Just like that. I mean, like overnight. And I don't come from money. So I had right. no money. Okay. Just barely getting by. And I said, well, what, what am I going to do now? I don't have a job. So I started calling his clients, mm. see if any of them would work with me. Smart. Most of them didn't. Wouldn't, okay. You know, I couldn't even get a hold of them, but a few did. And so I kind of had this beginning of a company. It was kind of a half-assed company at that point. Right. But I had a little bit of business and then I brought in a partner, Bruce Lixie, and then mm -hmm. I brought in another partner. Dave Beaton and then eventually Keith Walker came on. How many years later are we? 33. 33 yeah. years later Media Process yeah. Group is still happening. It is. And alive and well. Yeah. And thriving. You, so where is your feature film project right now? What mm. is the screenplay done? Yes. Okay. Well, we're doing some tweaks to it right now. Okay. I have kind of a writer group now mm -hmm. that a friend of mine, Erica Frederick, is one of the producers, but she's also a screenwriting teacher. Mm. So she put together, it's almost like a writer's room, you might say. It's five people. So we've been going, tearing apart, not tearing apart, but really digging into the screenplay. Mm -hmm. And so we've been working on it for a couple months and we're finally at almost to the end of that process. It's been great. We've improved it tremendously. Yeah, I bet so. I, she kind of resurrected the project almost because I was getting... It's tough to make a feature film if you've never done one, to raise yes, the money and all that whole thing. So Where are you in that process right now? So I decided to wait to do the fundraising until we had the script done. Mm -hmm. Solid. Because everybody's going to want to read the script. And I thought, sure. well, if we can make a good script even better, then I'll just wait on it. So right now you're in the process we're of raising... pretty close to being oh. done with the screenplay and you have started or will start the fundraising process yes. soon yep so if there's anybody out there with a couple million <laughs> 
Give me a call. What 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 is the name of the film? <laughs> Waiting for the Clash. Waiting for the Clash. Yeah. I love that. There and is I, an old website. It's really out of date, but it's called waitingfortheclash.com if somebody wants to look at it. Excellent. Yeah. And what drew you to the Clash? Well, there's two things. I always tell people each generation has its own music. I was too young to be part of the Vietnam generation, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But I kind of had a feeling like I wish I could have been. I was a little jealous of the people that were protesting and and the, everything. Because when I was growing up in the mid to late 70s, mm. it was kind of a political dead zone. You know, there wasn't much going on. So I kind of looked at my brother and my sister older than me, and I kind of probably romanticized this whole thing. It's easy to do. so then uh when i became a college radio dj punk rock was really coming out Mm. and there was something about it that i i i loved ramones and it was something basic about it Mm -hmm. the the music of it and then i became more political Mm. as i got a little bit older into college and so it was the political thing as well the clash were among the most political bands of the time yeah and it's like it's this visceral guttural feel to the actual music yeah and it's just this huge aggressiveness to authority yeah just saying no you're not going to tell me what to do right and basically giving them the proverbial middle finger yeah exactly and and not giving a damn about that that. appealed to me i also didn't i just didn't (laughs) like those what i would call corporate rock bands i I, you know the i had a whole litany kansas boston sticks (laughs) reo you know etc etc i just never you know i just couldn't stand those bands yeah so when the clash and the ramones and sex pistols and all that when they came out it just it, it it grabbed me yeah, and, uh, me and my friends, we became part of the comedy of the film. Is that the three main characters in the film, who are all DJs, mm-hmm. are obsessed with punk rock, and they're purists, mm-hmm. where nothing else right, is right. acceptable. Right, and so it's a huge joke in the film, and it's you know it's based on reality because that's how kind of we were. You know, we mm-hmm. hated disco music. Sure, oh. so disco plays another is a great foil for us in the film. Oh, oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's oh, I, I, I can't wait to see it. It's a very I, I, funny script. Yeah. Oh, I bet it is. Yeah. And I also wanted to ask you about the film about the Baha'i faith. Oh, yeah. What is that about? So I was hired, as I said earlier, by Steve Sarowitz. Okay. Steve is a Baha'i faith member and uh, very passionate about the faith. And he was introduced to me through a series of friends. He wanted to make a film about the history of the Baha'i faith, how they started. They started in the 1840s in Persia, now called Iran. So we came to terms and I agreed to work on the film for him. So it's called The Gate, The Dawn of the Baha'i Faith. That's the name of the film. So we had this opportunity that I'd never had before to film these elaborate reenactment scenes mm. in southern Spain. With I remember that. Huge, yes. I mean, we had 250 extras and we rented a palace and a fort. And I mean, it was an amazing experience to have that kind of resource. Yeah, that's extraordinary on a documentary. Yeah, it is. It's very unusual. And what was the most striking thing that you learned about the faith? Oh, well, I think the most striking thing is the unity of all faiths. That's one of their tenets, is that they believe in the validity and importance of all faiths. Hmm. They embrace all faiths. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I've always felt like, why are religions fighting each other? Mm -hmm. All religions preach peace Mm -hmm. and love. Yes. So I think this is a very admirable part of their faith, is they embrace all religions. Is that emphasized in the film? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a big part of the film. Absolutely. Um, That's quite striking. How many people Mm -hmm. are in the Baha'i faith worldwide? It's like... Five million people around the world, but they are in many countries around the world. And we have the Baha'i Temple here just north of Chicago. We have the only North American temple is in Wilmette. Just 
just for those of you who don't know, that's just a northern suburb of Chicago. Right. And it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely Stunning. beautiful. Yeah. Well, Bob, thank you so much for being here. It was a real pleasure to speak with you and for you to give us a glimpse into your world. And good luck on your first ever dramatic feature film project. I can't wait to see it. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Steve. Join us next week as I welcome the Grammy Award-winning icon, Mavis Staples. As we discuss how the Staples Singers got started, her illustrious career with her family, and working with such musical greats as Prince and Bob Dylan, as well as her family's relationship with Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement. We also talk about the groundbreaking gospel music television program, Jubilee Showcase. This show gave a powerful platform for most of the notable gospel artists in the 1960s and 70s, including the Staples Singers, and was hosted and produced by my father, Sid Ordauer. You don't want to miss this, so do yourself a favor and subscribe to this podcast, and please leave a rating and review so others can find out about Rhythm of Life. This has been a Rhythm and Light production.